Beyond the Challenges is a podcast where executives in the insurance and financial services industry share their insights and experiences. Hosts Kevin and Sandy Doherty talk with today's top business leaders about what keeps them up at night and the biggest opportunity organizations can capitalize on today. We encourage you to listen, share, and subscribe to our program. Kevin and Sandy Doherty each have over 20 years of experience in insurance and financial services, corporate leadership, and executive search. They're the owners of Global Corporate Solutions and Global Corporate Leaders. Global Corporate Solutions partners with organizations to gain efficiencies and contain costs. Global Corporate Leaders partners with organizations to enhance and evaluate talent. Beyond the Challenges podcast is sponsored by Exactuals, perfecting payments and the data driving them. Welcome to Beyond the Challenges. Here are your hosts, Kevin and Sandy. Welcome to Beyond the Challenges. Today, we're going to talk with John Stenberg, Executive Vice President with Symmetra, about how technology is helping to close the coverage gap in the U.S. John, welcome to Beyond the Challenges. Well, thank you, Kevin. It's great to be here. Could you tell me a little bit about your career in the insurance and financial services? Uh, sure, Kevin. I, uh, I joined Aetna Life Insurance, uh, actually Aetna Life and Casualty in 1990 in January. Uh, and I, I joined in a rotational program uh, where I got to, I was supposed to see different uh, business units and get exposure to different parts of, of Aetna's overall business um, with the goal of going into corporate finance. Uh, from there, though, the, the program was canceled, and so I was temporarily out of a job, and um, the life insurance division picked me up, which happened to be the first division I had been exposed to, uh, and I worked there in different capacities from uh, working with product development to competitive intelligence until I was hired as a wholesaler internally by Aetna, uh, and that really changed the trajectory of my career. Um, I went from uh, working on the products, actually selling them, which is a, a pretty rare thing. Uh, and then from there, I was hired by Lincoln Financial Group uh, to be a wholesaler uh, out in California. Uh, but after a while, I, I, I really wanted something more strategic. It's just how my mind works. Uh, and so I took over a project to revitalize the independent planner channel at Lincoln uh, going into management and rebuilt that uh, uh that was a lot of hard work but a lot of fun went from two to 100 million sales in about three years uh adding a lot of new accounts and whatnot uh at, hiring some wholesalers uh and then from there i i decided i i really wanted to get more strategic and, and i uh, decided to apply to wharton for my mba was accepted i took a job at ubs uh as a uh, operational person running their life uh, department. And uh, while I was doing that, I was doing my MBA down in Philadelphia. And uh, so that was that was interesting. Uh, coming out of that, uh, hired by New York Life to run their product development for life insurance. So that was a that was a step back into product development uh, and uh, really enjoyed that. Did that during the crisis of uh, 08 and 09. Uh, and then the job I, you know, I'd been looking for, uh, for, uh, 
opened up at Ameriprise and Ameriprise hired me to run their life division. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. So I, I did that there for seven years. Um, I had a lot of fun doing that, uh, was able to change a lot of things. And then uh, Symmetra knocked on the door and they said, we really want to grow our life division. Uh, something that at the time Ameriprise was, was not as interested in doing in, in, in rapid growth. And I, I really liked the international aspect of Symmetra being owned by Sumitomo. So I took, I took the job I have now running the life division at Symmetra and uh, I'm having a, having a blast. How did you get into the insurance and financial services industry? Uh, as is typical, unless you have a family member in life insurance, it was in a roundabout way. I was a finance major in college. And uh, so that was heading me towards, I thought at the time, a career in banking. But uh, a recruiter in the last minute, as I was had a couple offers from a bank, said, uh, you don't want to go into banking. Uh, they're going to go through all sorts of turmoil in the 90s. Uh, this conversation was in uh, December of 89. They're going to go through all sorts of turmoil. You really need the stability of life insurance company, of a large life insurance company, to grow and nurture your career. I, I wasn't so sure it was going to be non-changing as he was trying to convince me but the job was in uh, hartford connecticut instead of detroit and that had a huge appeal to me <laughs> so uh we make decisions on uh, odd things when we're young and uh, i decided on that basis to take the job and at 151 farmington avenue in hartford connecticut with aetna and uh and here i am today uh 30 years later still in the financial services industry still in insurance in 2019 the total life insurance ownership gap which shows the difference between perceived need and what is actually owned in the u.s was nine percent with millennials reporting a 78 percent shortfall and gen xers reporting a 48 percent shortfall in life insurance coverage with the main reason being prioritizing between having stuff today and taking care of their family in the distant future? Well, first, uh, this is the right question to ask. Uh, I'm, I have a lot of passion around this coverage gap, and I, I feel somewhat personally having dedicated uh, coming up to 32 years of my life uh, to this profession and covering American families that uh, this gap has been uh, stubbornly large and not shrinking, but growing. Um, so I think first we need to ask, why is this gap growing? Why is this gap uh, expanding? Is it cost? You, you mentioned having things today versus, uh, versus protecting your family for the future. Uh, I, I don't think it's cost. Uh, disposable income is higher than it was 40 years ago. Uh, the cost of a basic term insurance policy to protect your income as, a, as, as, as new parents, for example, uh, has, has shrunk 60%. Uh, it per and then that's cost per thousand. Uh, when you compare that to disposable income rising over the last 40 years, uh, this is really a low cost issue. And, and, and I think uh, paradoxically, that might be part of the problem uh, because it's fueled the exit of many uh, producers, advisors in our profession. Uh, back in the 70s, we had, we had uh, close to 400,000 
uh, people that could talk to other people about life insurance in America. And the population was less than uh, 250 million people back then. Now we have uh, you know, roughly 350 million people, and the number of people that can talk to people about life insurance is half of that. So life insurance is, is something uh, that people do poorly buying themselves. Uh, it's not like waking up on a Saturday morning and telling your loved one, hey, we get to go window shopping for Ferraris, and, and they're excited. They hop up in the, in the morning, they, they're going, they're, they're going to make a day of that. Uh, life insurance just doesn't get the same reaction, let's be honest. Um, it's something that, that you're not forced to buy like auto insurance. It's something you should buy and you need to buy. Uh, but that leaves op the open the possibility to people, obviously, to procrastinate or buy less than they need. Uh, and we haven't done uh, any favors to the in industry by the process. Heavy paper takes two months to get a policy. We stick you with a needle. We send people to your homes. Uh, to put you on a scale and, 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 and take your blood pressure and, and all this. The process is somewhat onerous unless you buy really expensive, simplified, or guaranteed issue policies. So it, part of the problem is we just don't have enough people talking to people about life insurance. So uh, digital needs to step in and, and, and help here. And, and it hasn't to a great extent yet. So if you think about if you think about the insure techs, if you think about the online uh, life insurance uh, options, they're there, um, but they haven't quite cracked the code to replace a neighborhood relationship talking to you over the kitchen table about your family and the needs of your family and getting you to buy that policy, whether it's a whole life policy or universal life policy or just a basic term policy. Uh, and it's going to be a challenge, I believe, uh, to do that uh, in the near future. I think this coverage gap will remain stubborn in the short, in the short term. Uh, and, and long term, I think we need to wait for solutions where people um, more and more may rely on their personal AI to handle things like basic uh, insurance coverages and stuff like that. And that, that could be 15 years in the future. Who knows? It's hard to predict that stuff. How do you see new technology helping to close the coverage gap in the United States? It's a metro. We have a, a lot of passion around this issue. We, all, we have a lot of passion around serving uh, cultural markets, serving the underserved that we're, we're, we're talking about here, particularly at the lower income uh, strata. And what we're doing is we're, we're, we're working right now, and we started this actually before COVID-19 uh, even hit us, is we're, sti we're stitching together new technologies that have not been used in life insurance before in a way I think that is somewhat unique to drive down the cost and to dramatically speed up the application to issue process. We're not the first to do this. We're, we're doing it in, in, in our own way. We, we looked at the technologies available off the shelf. We found them lacking. So we are developing uh, some technologies with some new partners. And we're really excited about this. We're looking at launching the initial phases next year in 2021. Uh, and eventually we may actually put annuities on there or some voluntary products to, 
to help group insurance individuals. Uh, and we'll have, um, I think, an impact on this coverage gap by going into and we'll be focusing on some of these under, underserved markets. We're very excited about doing more in the cultural markets. Uh, we're very excited about making sure that lower families have the coverage that they absolutely need. Uh, they're, they're, they're the least able to suffer a financial blow from the death of a, of a breadwinner uh, among all families. And so it's something that I think our industry needs to do a better job at. We need to step up as an industry and make sure that we we heed our, our social calling. John, uh, how will distribution need to change to help with the coverage gap? That's one of the most important questions of this entire thing. I, I mentioned the fact that we have half the life insurance producers and advisors in America today that we did 40 years ago with a, with a higher population. That ratio is a huge issue. It's been proven that in the past, at least, the most effective way to sell life insurance is a neighborhood relationship, somebody you may know uh, in your synagogue or temple or, or, or church or local club, uh, a, a relationship you've developed, and that's somebody who knows your neighborhood and you and your family, and they come and sit across the kitchen table, they see you in person, and that's a very effective way of selling life insurance. Once COVID is over, that'll actually go back to being one of the one, one of the key ways of, of how life insurance is sold. Digital will need to step up, uh, obviously. That's still something that we're learning how to do right. We're still learning how to motivate people to engage with the purchase of life insurance and go through the process. Even if the process was fully accelerated with no blood draw, no fluids, and, and very fast, and very cheap, we still have a challenge capturing people's attention to getting them and getting them to engage with the process and, and finishing the process. And, and that's something that we have not solved yet. We're getting better. The amount of per, uh, coverage purchased online is, is growing, uh, but not enough to stem the, the growth of this coverage gap. Do you believe that producers feel threatened by the direct-to-consumer channel? even if they are helping close the gap? I don't believe so. I have not talked to producers that bring this up to me as an issue. The, the reason is the direct-to-consumer model is really, is really targeting the lower income and, and underserved markets and sometimes the, the cultural markets that we, we talked about before. These are markets that the producer, given the small size of the policies and the small premium are challenged to get to from a financial standpoint, from an efficiency standpoint. They have to see a whole bunch of clients you know, and sell a whole bunch of policies when the, when the premium is $270 a year, for example. So as you go up in complexity and, 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 and case size, that's when a human sitting across the kitchen table or in your office or in an attorney's office is really effective and really needed because they can take the time to go through the nuances of the case, maybe figure out trust strategies and whatnot. But when you're talking about protecting young, healthy people with basic income protection, it's hard to do with the model that was successful for the last hundred years. Companies going direct to consumers or intermediaries who are online who, who focus on that 
and there are a number of them, are really stepping in and trying to, to sell the right to business that humans are, are somewhat inefficient in doing because of the dramatically lower cost of coverage today. How is COVID-19 changing the way producers reach new clients and service existing clients? Great question. I think across the industry, we're not doing a good job reaching new clients in 2020 for obvious reasons. Many folks rely on that person-to-person contact to build a relationship and sell policies. That's very difficult to do in the face of COVID. Many producers, I think, are doing a good job in servicing existing clients because they can, they can talk to more virtually via video or phone than they can driving around and doing in-person meetings. Reaching new clients is, is, has been a dramatic challenge. And I think that post-COVID, there may be uh, hopefully some catch-up in those sales that rely on face-to-face. And and long-term, I think this could help some producers that were stuck in an old model of having a hybrid model where they're reaching Gen Xers, younger Gen Xers, and millennials that don't really want to meet face-to-face but are willing to do a video call. And they can do a lot more than than they can face-to-face. For those who adapt, this could be a really good thing. Having a hybrid model where you do some in person, but then you are doing a lot of video calls, you're not having to travel. And and that could be a really efficient model for those willing to adapt. Great insight and information there. How has COVID-19 changed the way Symmetra sees your digital strategy? Obviously, uh, we've had plans to move from paper to digital over time. Traditionally, over the last 10 years, we've been focused on estate planning cases and larger cases. We're, we're, we're working hard to go down market, and as you do that, you need to digitize. COVID took about three years of planning and put it in about three months. Sometimes you need a good uh, emergency to get a kick in the pants and have things decisions made really quickly. We also had some regulatory relief during this year so that we could do things online with less regulatory risk. We're hoping that regulatory environment uh, continues to be open to innovation. But in 2020, it certainly was. Obviously, regulators did not want producers meeting with clients face-to-face during the middle of the crisis. And so certain accommodations were made by key regulators to allow us to do things digitally where it was a challenge before. With culture being part of the coverage gap, do you believe that better diversity hiring will help close the culture coverage gap? Absolutely. I, the industry has a diversity problem. That's obvious. Asymmetra, it's one of our goals to be the most inclusive life insurance carrier in America. So diversity, equity, inclusion is something we talk a lot about and we're very focused on. To answer your question about diversity hiring and closing the coverage gap within cultural markets, As you become more diverse, you become better at adapting and learning other cultures, working with other with cultures to do business with those cultures in a way that makes them feel comfortable. So a big part of this, though, is to build relationships and support agents within cultural markets, because that's that's often the most effective way to to reach these markets are neighborhood agents within that culture. Oftentimes, there there, there are language gaps that they can close or cultural understandings that they have and we just don't have that will dramatically help here. To the extent where we go direct consumer, having a more diverse employee base will help us, again, do business in a way 
that reaches those cultural markets on their terms, not ours. That's great. Look forward to seeing how the organization evolves over the next couple of years. What is the single best opportunity the life insurance industry can capitalize on today? I think one of the silver linings of COVID has been the acceleration of innovation to do business in, in ways that people want to do business with today and the regulatory acceptance of that innovation that has been in, in certain regulatory bodies, they've been very resistant to some innovations. And I think if we can continue to drive that innovation and work with the regulators to embrace that innovation, I think that's probably the best opportunity we can to help drive down that coverage gap that is so stubborn. What is the biggest thing that you did that had a positive impact on your career? The biggest thing, I think by far, is it comes down to one word, and that's curiosity. Early on, I was curious about the world. I was curious about history. I was curious about government interaction and politics and and how all this stuff worked together. Uh, I read voraciously on all this stuff. When I got into the business, I asked a lot of questions from different people in different disciplines. I was fortunate to be given the opportunity to work in different areas of the life insurance operations within, within Aetna and later uh, Lincoln and New York Life. And all along the way, doing whatever I could to learn about other jobs and learn how things work. I, I got my FLMI. I got my uh, CLU from the American College early in my career and really enjoyed those because those gave me a, some structured learning and a foundation uh, so that as I talked to people, I had more context. Highly encourage folks in their early career to, uh, to take those steps. And the, through my entire career, just having a lot of curiosity, grabbing uh, lunches with folks in different departments and asking about their jobs and uh, th th this wasn't the purpose, but accidentally networking in the process. Uh, I undervalued networking um, through much of my career, but did it accidentally through wanting to learn all these different things, uh, asking a lot of questions in meetings, uh, making sure I had context. So that's something anybody can do. It it's not a big secret, but it's something that I think people don't take advantage of just having a natural curiosity. What advice would you give to someone looking to get into the insurance and financial services industry? Well, it, it depends on what role you want to play in the financial services industry. If you want to be a really successful salesperson and build a business or build a career as a wholesaler, then I, I think you need to really understand people and you need to really understand the product. You can't have one or the other, you need both to be a successful salesperson or a successful distribution person. If, on the other hand, you want to be the CEO and you want to go up in through the executive ranks, then you're going to have to really understand the world in three different ways. You're going to have to understand geopolitics and how that comes down to the local level. You need to understand history so you have context and you need to understand geography. You just would never see a, a Fortune 500 company having a CEO who was clueless about history, clueless about geography, and didn't understand geopolitics. This is a very global industry, and things impact us 
from things overseas. Uh, and so having that basis of understanding will provide a foundation and also make you a more interesting person to talk to for those who are networking with you uh, and, and, and will give you the gravitas to be viewed as a senior leader, somebody that understands more than just the tactical, but also the strategic. Now let's take a few minutes to talk about new government regulation and compliance that may challenge the life insurance industry. With your work with ACLI, you see the most current concerns and opportunities in Washington, D.C. What regulation or compliance trends are you seeing for the insurance industry with the change of party leadership after the 2020 election? Great question. There are probably four key items that will be the focus of the ACLI and the regulatory bodies over the next few years. And only one of them really will be heavily driven by the party leadership. Uh, the first is illustration regulations. That's something that we have seem to have uh, trouble getting right as an industry and, and in cooperation with the regulatory bodies, making sure the illustrations are uh, understandable and we reduce the risk of differences between what the illustration shows and reality in the future. Uh, the second will be uh, racial inequity. It's something that was obviously given the 2020 uh, events, something that's on everyone's mind and certainly the regulators. And so what we, we, we want to do in working with the regulators is making sure that we do a good review to make sure there's no bias and discrimination within our, our policies, particularly underwriting policies, without harming the very technology, which is going to help drive closing the coverage gap in lower income population. The next is DOL, obviously. Uh, DOL is something that will have it be impacted by the party leadership. We don't know if it will be Department of Labor, but it's something that looks and feels like DOL. Uh, we're, we're expecting a lot of conversation around that over the next four years. Uh, and we want to make sure that that work on the regulatory side does not harm and increase the coverage gap, which is, you know, is what we're concerned about. And then lastly, we really need discussions with our regulatory bodies around regulatory modernization, where we need them to embrace innovation within our industry. Uh, we need them to give us relief on some things that, for, for example, force us to drive paper on one hand, but on the other hand, we have environmental regulations and desires to be, to be more efficient and better for the environment, and, and digital is good for that. And we have, we have conflicting regulations and conflicting regulatory concerns in those areas. And so modernizing our regulatory system is a conversation we need to drive with our regulators. John, thank you for your time today. It's been great to learn about how Symmetra is helping close the life insurance coverage gap in the U.S. and hear your perspective on possible upcoming regulations and compliance trends. Thank you for listening. Please make sure to subscribe and share so we can stay in touch. If you would like to learn more about how global corporate solutions and global corporate leaders can help your organization recruit the best talent, increase your diversity, and save money, please visit our website at www.thegclgroup.com.